Well, let's turn to God's Word together. And I'd like to read with you from Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10 to the end of verse 20. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10 and reading down to the end of verse 20. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And I want this evening to home in uh, in those verses on the opening verse, verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. And there is one little phrase in that verse. It nestles right in the heart of it. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Now just to put this in its context, Christians are blessed above all men. We read in chapter 1, and on into chapters 2 and 3 of those spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places in Christ. Christians are greatly favoured and blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. Well, what a, what a word that is, isn't it? Can't begin to plumb the depth of it or scale the height of it. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And where is all, where are all those blessings homing in? In Christ. That's the secret of being a Christian. We are those who are in Christ. But that means that we have to live a certain type of life a lifestyle befitting the believer. 
And just to briefly outline that, and it's going to be very brief for obvious reasons, because I want to come to the text, but it lies behind it. How are Christians supposed to live in this world? Well, in chapter 4 and verse 1, they are to walk worthy of their calling. They have to walk worthy of their calling. Their calling as Christians. And what is the call that comes to us if we are Christians tonight? What did our Lord say? What is his call? Take up the cross and follow me. That's our calling. We are followers, we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will be manifest in the way in which we walk. So when we go down beyond chapter 4 and verse 1, we find in verse 3 there is a, a sense of unity. We are to walk unitedly. There's only one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. We are to walk in unity as Christians. Now that leads into a whole new theme. We are to be worthy, and we show that we are worthy of our calling by walking together in unity. In verses 17 to 24 of chapter 4, we are to be walking in righteousness. We do not walk in ways and paths of unrighteousness. We walk in the ways of truth and righteousness. In chapter 5, we, we find love is essential. Verse 2, walk in love. Emulate Christ's love to you as you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's the heart of unity, isn't it? And that's, what is, that's the sum of righteousness, in a sense. Walking together in the ways of the Lord, loving one another, and serving one another. There has to be a great openness in verse 8 of chapter 5. We are to be walking as children of light. We walk openly as Christians. We don't hide our lights under a bushel. We walk openly. And uh, further down in that chapter, verse 15, we walk circumspectly. We walk wisely. We, we're not rash. We're not headstrong. We walk circumspectly in our life as Christians. And then in verse 22 and down into chapter 6, humility is a great hallmark of the Christian life. In the family, there's humility. Husbands love their wives. Wives submit to their husbands. But it's, it's humility, isn't it? That's the essence of the, the marriage relationship. The family relationship is one of humility as parents rule over their children and children yield to the wish and will of their parents. 
because they know their parents love them and they love their parents. So love comes into it and it's an, a beautiful sight to see a family that lives and works in love together, humbly serving one another. It works in the workplace. Brothers and sisters, those in the workplace, there's to be a, a, an air of humility about us. After all, we are following our Lord. We are walking with the Lord in the light of his word. And our Lord didn't rise up and assert himself. He was assertive, in a sense, but not in the way we can be assertive. Humility is a key element of the Christian life. Now, having said all that, it's clear, isn't it, that to live such a life requires great strength of character and strength of faith. And so Paul, as he draws this wonderful letter towards a close, he says, now finally, you know who you are, you are those who are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You are those who are walking worthy of your calling. Now be strong. This isn't for the faint-hearted. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So, how are we going to be strong? How can we be strong? I'm reminded of the answer to the question, from whence comes my help in Psalm 121? And what's the answer to the question? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There is a sense of confidence in the psalmist in Psalm 118 and verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I am a follower of Christ. He's on my side. I will not fear. I will walk openly for him. I will not fear. After all, what can man do to me? If the Lord is on my side, if as we read in Psalm 46, he is my refuge and my strength, what can man achieve against me? Now I don't say that lightly, but that's the reality. That's the truth of God's word. So how can we have that strength? How can we find that confidence that Paul is writing about? that the psalmist knew in his struggles. How do we walk worthy? Well, let's just answer a couple of points. First of all, it seems to me in these verses that Paul says, we are not alone. We are not alone, Christians. Note how Paul addresses his exhortation in verse 10. Finally, my brethren. That's plural. That's plural. And he uses the plural form throughout this passage. Constantly, 
He uses the plural you, the we, their plural pronouns and so on. You, together. We, together. Together with the Lord. We are not alone. Just pause and think about that phrase, my brethren. What a wonderful thing to be here tonight with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We labour together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a wonderful thing. It's very precious when we're not fighting alone, when we're not struggling alone, even at a human level. Is it not very precious to you when you sing, we have sweet communion with each other and the Lord? There's a source of strength. We do things together. We're not lone rangers. And that's an important thing. So many people today are lone rangers. And they struggle. Well, they will do. But the Christian should not be a lone ranger. We labour together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, he was in Rome under house arrest. How he valued the fellowship of the brethren in prayer for him. How he valued the way that he knew, and just read the letters that he wrote, he's so grateful for their fellowship in the gospel, their fellowship in prayer. And he was so encouraged to know that they were praying for one another, praying for all saints. But better than that, that is a great thing and it's vital for our spiritual health and well-being. He makes the point that the Lord is with us. The letter opens with a repeated statement that his readers are in him or in Christ. They are surrounded by Christ himself. They are in him. I know there's much that could be used about that expression, but this is one aspect of it. We are in him. He is our refuge. He is our strength. Has he not said himself? Did he not say through the writer to the Hebrews, I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. What a source of strength. Friends, we can take on all sorts of things when we know that our brothers and sisters are fighting for us in prayer and when the Lord himself is surrounding us. We are safe and secure in him. Think of David when he went out as a young man, a teenager quite possibly, to face Goliath. You come to me with all your weaponry and all your shouts and evil words, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. 
There was the source of his strength. He knew God was with him. And we know God is with us as well. You'll you'll possibly remember Wesley's famous words. Best of all is, God is with us. And that's where we stand as Christians in this world today. Best of all, God is with us. God will hold and never fail. And listen to his exhortation. Keep that truth when storms are raging. God remains, though faith is frail. Best of all is God is with us. Life goes on and needs are met. God is strongest in our weakness. Love renews, will not forget. Best of all is God is with us. Hearts are challenged, strangely warmed. Faith is deepened, courage strengthened, grace received, and hope reformed. Yes, best of all, God is with us. Don't you find strength in that very thought? Well, live in the light of it. Let me encourage you. Go on. Go on together as a church here. Go on united in the family circle. Go on together. But go on together with the Lord. When God is with us, we are able to walk worthy. We can be strong because we are not alone. The next thought that strikes me in this passage is we know our enemies. We know who our enemies are. That comes out in verses 11 and 12. Who are our enemies? In verse 12 particular. Flesh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. We are left in no doubt as to the identity of our enemies. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the very environment of our humanity and it affects us all. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these are all things that are of the world. And how the world allures us with its visual and carnal desires, tempting our flesh, tempting our humanity to walk by sight and not by faith. But how does the Christian walk? It's the reverse, isn't it? We walk by faith in God, not by sight, what we can see all around us. The world works on our flesh. The devil himself commands and uses the world and the flesh. But then we need to remind ourselves, don't we, that he is a wily foe 
and he uses his various endeavours and cohorts. But we remind ourselves tonight that the arch enemy is already defeated. He is already a defeated foe. The Lord, our blessed Saviour, tells us that he saw Satan fall from heaven. He saw him cast out of the place to which we are going. And what happened on the cross? There the Lord bruised his head even as his own heel was bruised. He's defeated. He's already defeated. His cohorts are revealed, aren't they? As spiritual in nature in verse 12. Not only flesh and blood, that's physical. But now there's the spiritual element behind it. Principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Basically, Paul says, know your enemy. Know your main enemy. Know the one who's in command of them. But it is a spiritual warfare. So we don't take up human weapons. We take up the spiritual weaponry as we shall see in a moment or two. Our enemies, basically the evil spirit world. Peter speaks of the angels that sinned. Jude speaks of the angels who did not keep their proper domain. They were cast out our Lord and Saviour saw them cast out of heaven and he came to finally trample them under his feet. Why? Yes, because they were his foes and his enemies and they were, they were warring against him. But because he was going to be the strength that we as Christians need to defeat them ourselves. So he says, follow me. Take up the cross even as I took up a cross, and follow me. But we don't only know the identity of these enemies, we know their modus operandi, don't we? Their method of working. Their wiles. The wiles of the devil in verse 11. Now what are those devices? We need to know. God in his goodness and mercy has told us what devices he uses. Peter in particular outlines for them in 2 Peter 2 and the first three verses. He speaks about false teachers. False teachers. It's a great blessing to have a sound gospel ministry, a sound pastoral care and ministry. Guard it. Guard your pastor. He is in the forefront. And those that would assault you will assault him first. 
false teachers. They creep in unawares. Paul said that would happen to the church at Ephesus, and it did. And where is that church today? Destructive heresies. Not only false teachers, but false destructive teachings. How prevalent today are false teachers and false teaching? Well, a false teacher will bring false teaching. They go together. How well do you know your Bible? How well do you know the scheme of salvation? How well do you know the wonderful examples and testimonies of Scripture? Destructive heresies are denying them all around us today. False teachers are propounding error everywhere. And then all that is compounded so often and increasingly again today by destructive behaviour. Lives that destroy rather than build up. Destroy family life. That's under attack today. Destroy the working environment. That's happening today. These are the things that are seeking to pull us down as Christians. You might as well give up, says the evil one, and come on board, because your life will be misery without. No, we stand firm, we stand fast. Covetousness. He's got more than I've got. So what? You're answerable to what you have been given. He's answerable to what he has been given, for what he has been given. Oh, false comparisons. They ought not to be found amongst us. A covetous spirit. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the tenth of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not covet. And if you look at all the other nine commandments, in one way or another, they are forbidding coveting. I leave you to look at that one. But it's the one command that seems to embrace all of them. Coveting the name of God. Coveting the power of God. Coveting what God belongs to God. And wanting it all for ourselves. And then wanting what our brother has. Wanting our brother or sister out of the way. So you can go on. Deceptive words. Oh, how deceptive are so many of the words. Double meanings, double standards. Words losing their true meaning. And confusion abounds on every hand because of it. These are the devices that Peter outlines way back then, as does Jude. He speaks about ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, dreamers who defile and reject authority. Wow, that's, that's where we are today, isn't it? Speaking evil of dignitaries. All these things. These are the things that the evil one 
will use to try and pull us down and conform to the world and destroy our witness. And Paul says that they would even infiltrate the church, as I hinted earlier. In that lovely address that he gave to the Ephesian elders at the end of Acts chapter 20, he says, now know this, you dear brothers, you're not going to see me again, but know this, when I've gone, you're trusting me, stop trusting me, trusting the Lord and go on. Savage wolves will come in among you. They won't spare the flock. And they will come even from amongst your own number. Speaking perverse things. To do what? Draw the disciples away from their calling. We need to be strong. And part of the strength (coughs) of the Christian is to know your enemy and how he operates. I'm reading a most fascinating book at the moment, The Memoirs of Field Marshal Montgomery. And this was something that he said. He pushed and pushed and pushed out in Egypt during the Egyptian campaign. Know your enemy. Not only know yourselves and know know your command and so on, but know your enemy. And when I know who my enemy is, I praise God. Because I know what my Saviour has done. He's defeated him. He's in chains. He's a chained foe. God did not spare the angels that sinned. He cast them down to hell, delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for the judgment day. And the devil himself is a chained foe. They're already condemned. They're already defeated. For when Jesus died and rose again, what did he do? What does the letter to the Colossians tell us? He disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. And he triumphed over them. Christian, be strong. Your enemies however subtle, however fierce, are all defeated already. We we can walk worthy and be strong because the opposition is defeated. And thirdly, we have confidence in our commander-in-chief. That's so important. We have confidence in our commander-in-chief. And isn't it precious that the scriptures reveal his identity? Who is your commander? Who are you serving tonight? When you go into the workplace tomorrow with all its challenges, who are you going to be serving? Yes, you've got your employer to consider. You've got other things to consider. You may have men under you and you have to consider them. But who are you actually serving? If you are a Christian, you are serving the captain of our salvation. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one under whose orders we live. 
He is the one under whose orders we serve. And his call is so clear and so simple, it's in two simple words, follow me. Follow me. He died for our salvation. He rose for our justification. He ascended to make intercession for us. And he's coming again for our glorification. And right here and now, he stands with us and dwells within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. What more do we need? We know what to do. Follow the pattern of Christ. And Christ is actually living in us in the person of the Spirit to enable us to do so. Don't let's turn round and run away. Don't let's follow the ways of the world and the attitudes of the world. But let us follow King Jesus. Let us follow our Lord and Saviour. And the scriptures remind us too of his modus operandi, how he operates to make us strong. What has he done? Along with the indwelling spirit, he has left us his personal example. He's shown us how to live. We've got a perfect example how to respond and how to deal with these things. Listen to Peter. He was writing to a church that was in persecution, under persecution, fierce persecution. When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. But he says, listen, follow this example. Christ suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. His is the perfect example. He committed no sin. Follow his example. There was no deceit in his mouth. Follow his example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Follow his example. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Follow his example. You see, as we've just sung, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he shines on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. My friend, if you will not trust him and will not obey him, don't be surprised when your world collapses. But if you are trusting him and obeying him, you will win through. Not in your own strength, but strong in the strength which God supplies through his beloved son. How did he get through? He used the same protection and weapons that he has given to us. He has given to us 
the best protection. There it is in verses 13 to the first part of verse 17. He's given us the best protection, the perfect armour. But we've got to put it on. Put on the whole armour of God. Not just a bit here and there. Put it all on. Take up the whole armour of God, verse 13. You'll be able to withstand. You'll be able to stand firm. And when everything's happened, you'll still be standing. Put on the belt of truth. That will keep you steady. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That will guard your heart. The shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace will protect your feet. The shield of faith will quench the fiery darts of the evil one. The helmet of salvation will garrison your mind. And we can sum all of that up in one little phrase. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. He is the truth. Put on Christ's righteousness and don't fight relying on your own. Put on Christ. Live out the gospel of peace. Walk out the gospel. Put on Christ. Put your trust in him. Hide behind him and your faith in him. And trust him with all your heart and all your mind. That salvation that is yours, don't take it off and dump it when you go to work in the morning. You'll fall. Keep the armour on. But alongside the protective armour, he has given us the most up-to-date weapons, the most up-to-date weapons to fight the battles of life in verses 17 and 18. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and all prayer, in verse 18. Friend, we've got the best weapons we could ever have. Our Lord used them. See how he used the sword of the Spirit. How he used it himself, the word of God, against the flesh. When the devil came to him and tempted him, you're hungry. Speak to these stones and turn them into bread and satisfy your craving. Satisfy your hunger. It is written, says the Lord. He wielded the sword of the Spirit. How he used that weapon against the devil himself when he pressed him to prove himself. If you're the son of God, jump off the temple pinnacle. After all, it's written that angels will pick you up. No, Jesus would not preserve himself, but entrusted himself to his father. See how he wielded the sword of the spirit against the world says Satan, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. 
What a fool Satan is. All the kingdoms of the world belong to Christ before he even had them offered to him. He trusted in God. And perhaps that great weapon of all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And perhaps the most powerful example of this was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I briefly mentioned it this morning. My father. And he's facing the biggest battle of his very being. My father, if this cup cannot pass from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. And friend, when you are facing the enemy, it's not your will, it's not your enemy's will. Lord, your will be done. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and see him bring you through. But key to having this protection, key to having this, these weapons, and key to progress is to use it. Is to put on the armour and to use the weapons. It's vital that we actually do what Paul says. Put on the whole armour of God. And when he emphasises it again, he says, take up the whole armour of God. Oh, my friend, put on the armour. What use is it, is it hanging in the guardroom? You've got to put it on every time you go out. My friend, it's essential that you take the sword of the Spirit which you have been given. Essential that you take it, look at it and put it back in the scabbard. No. You take it out and you use it. That's why it's important to begin every day with prayer. Important to begin every day with turning to the Word of God, individually and in family life. Every meeting of the church begins with the Word of God and with prayer, because there the enemy will try and disturb and disrupt. So we take out the weapons, we put on the armour, we take the weapons and we wield them. Pray without ceasing, says the Apostle. And watch with all perseverance and supplication. As our Lord said, watch therefore. And pray always. It's not just Paul, this is our, this is our commander. The one we are following. Watch, be alert, be aware. Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. And as you do so, you'll be prepared to stand before the Son of Man. We're able to walk worthy and be strong because we have suitable armour and suitable weapons. Christian, you are called to walk worthy of your calling that calling with which you were called. What that looks like, 
Go home and read Ephesians. Try and read it at a sitting. Oh, I've got time for that. Then you should have. Do you think the church, when they receive this letter, oh, we'll read a bit today, we'll read, have, them, have the rest tomorrow morning, Paul. No, they would have listened to a letter. Is that how you treat your correspondence? This is a letter from God by the inspiration of the Spirit through Paul to you and to me. We need to read it all. We know what it looks like to walk worthy. We know who has called us to do so and he has equipped us to do so. So put on the armour, use the weapon he has supplied, following the example of your Lord and his servant Paul. And what did Paul say in his closing letter to Timothy? The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, finally, and I'm almost there. Timothy, I'm nearly there. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge. Oh, I've been facing all these unrighteous judges, all these mere enemies in the, as tools of Satan. But in a few days, perhaps, the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me the crown of life and success. And not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. Is that what you're looking forward to? His appearing? I am. I hope you are. Then all our troubles will cease forever. But let's persevere through, strong in the strength which he supplies through his beloved Son. Let's sing our...